Good morning. Everybody ready for the big game? What game? We, we don't tend to mention those things, but I'm, I'm not really talking about the Super Bowl. I'm talking about this time right here, the big game, right? Preparing us, uh, maybe even viewing this message as a, a pregame or a halftime speech. Chuck, you're a football coach. Did you give some pretty powerful halftime speeches? Yeah, all the time, all the time. Uh, <clears throat> never coached. I coached some flag football. Get out there, pull those flags. That was my halftime speech. Anyway, uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Today we're going to continue our study through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And speaking of church, uh, since we're here, most of us anyway, uh, let me ask you a few questions about church. You don't need to answer out loud. It might be embarrassing. Uh, these questions are meant to help you ponder your feelings about the church. So here it goes. What is your commitment level to attending church? What would cause you to miss church? Must you be on your deathbed or does an important NFL game qualify? Got to get ready for the game, right? How much of a priority is church in your life? Not the building, but the people and what takes place in the building, corporate worship of the living God. Is church vital to your spiritual health? Is it crucial for your emotional well-being? Is it important for your relationship with God and others? Or is it just that thing you do on Sundays if you have time? And for those of us who do attend church regularly, can you explain why? If someone said to you, why do you go to church? What would your answer be? And finally, do you think beyond attending church? Do you think to serving in the church, serving the body of Christ? Now I'm talking about this, uh, this church right here, Bridges, or any local church that, might, uh, that you might be part of. But the church also refers to a larger group of believers. The church worldwide, the people of God, the body of Christ, His, His church. So ultimately the question I want us to think about is, do you have a heart for God's people? For Christ's body? For His church? For it is His church, it's not our church. It's not my church. And I'll be honest and I'll say that I think when it comes to church, both local and worldwide, many Christians have a uh, Grinchly heart. What was the size of the Grinch's heart at the beginning of the story? It was close, two sizes. Two si he wasn't that bad. It was two sizes too small. Well, today, it's my hope and prayer that our hearts for the church will grow. That like the Grinch's heart, at the end of the story, ours might grow three sizes this day. That's the three. It was two sizes too small, and then it grew three sizes. So if you do the math, it was bigger than normal at the end. Or at least we could get started in that direction. And so to increase the capacity of our hearts for the church, we're going to look not at the Grinch's heart, but at the Apostle Paul's. The Apostle Paul who instructed the Corinthian church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Now, last week, our focus at the end of, at the end of chapter 1 was Paul's ministry, his service to the church. His, he's a minister of the gospel to the church of Jesus Christ. He rejoiced in his suffering for the church. He suffered that they might both receive the gospel and grow in their Christian faith. He ministered to the church by preaching, making the Word of God fully known to them, specifically proclaiming Christ, warning them, admonishing them, correcting their wrong beliefs and actions, and teaching them both theological understanding of God and practical Christian living. And then in the final verse of chapter 1, Paul concludes the description of his ministry to the church by saying, for this, this ministry... I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul toiled and struggled for the church. He worked hard, but it was with the energy of God, powerfully working in him, that God supplied him the energy. So, so that's where we ended last week. We focused mainly on Paul's example as a minister of the gospel to the church. But we also saw, saw through his uh, joyful suffering... And hard, uh, hard work, his labors, that he clearly had a heart for the church. And that's uh, what we'll continue to see in our passage today. The focus today will be on Paul's heart for the church. And by revealing his heart, he models for us what and how our hearts ought to feel for the church. And the first thing we see, the first thing that reveals Paul's heart is Paul's struggle for the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, is a continuation from chapter 1, verse 29. And, at the, and as we just read at the end of chapter 1, for this, my multifaceted ministry to the church, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he might powerfully work within me. And then continuing the same theme, speaking specifically to the church, the Christians of Colossae and beyond, we'll see, he makes it personal. For I want you, Colossians, to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Those that had seen Paul face to face probably could read his struggle, but so he's saying, for those that haven't seen me, I want you to know my struggle. Now, Laodicea was one of the seven churches that the book of Revelation was written to, just for you to know, it was neither hot nor cold. And so Jesus spit them out of his mouth, but that was later, and it's not our topic for today. For our purposes, we should know that Laodicea was the closest city to Colossae. It was located nine miles northwest, and both Colossae and Laodicea are located in what was Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. They would have felt the earthquake. This is the same location that's in the news. There was a close relationship between these churches, and Paul would have expected this letter uh, to, go to, to be read by both cities. Many believe that the Laodiceans were facing the same issues that we've talked about for Colossae, these false teachers. And so Paul is addressing them both. In 129, he tells them of his struggle in ministry, just in general, but in 2.1, he makes it clear that he struggles specifically for them. And as we saw last week, that word struggle is the Greek noun agon, from which we get our word agony. The word originally uh, derived from the place where the Greeks assembled for their Super Bowl, 
the Olympic Games, a place where they agonized in wrestling and foot races, where they fought to win. Paul had been agonizing, fighting, struggling for these churches with everything he had. My football coach in high school used to say, uh, leave it all on the field. Give everything you have. Hold nothing back to win the game. That's how Paul struggled for these churches. He gave his all. And what makes this truly remarkable is the fact that he'd never once personally met, personally visited these churches. Aside from Epaphras, Philemon, maybe a few others that he had met when he was in Ephesus, Paul had never been to Colossae or Laodicea. It's thought that Epaphras probably helped to start both of those churches. So Paul, he's sort of the grandfather. He shares with Epaphras, and then Epaphras starts these churches. So Paul had no idea what these people looked like. He knew nothing of their personalities, their likes, their dislikes, yet he agonizes over them. So why the struggle for people he had never met? Well, put simply, he had a heart for the church. He had a heart for God's people. His old stony heart that was formerly intent, if you remember from Acts, Acts chapter 9 specifically, on persecuting the church, had been replaced with a heart which beat for love for believers, both Jew and Gentile. Paul shared something crucial with the Colossians and the Laodiceans, and we could add the Romans and the Corinthians and the Galatians and the uh, Ephesians and the Philippians and the Thessalonians and others, he shared the same relationship with Christ. They were all in Christ. They were united in Christ. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They belonged to the same body, the body of Christ. Christ was the head of all of them. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. As Christians, as part of the church of Jesus Christ, we share a special, unique, and real bond. We're united with one another in and through Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God inhabits each one of us. Paul clearly understood this. And it resulted in a loving, caring heart for the church that would ag- that, so much so that he would agonize and struggle over them, even suffer persecution for them. Remember, remember where he's writing from. He's writing from Rome where he's been arrested. He appeals to Rome and now he's under house arrest in Rome for his ministry to the church, for preaching the gospel, for building churches. Wherever Paul went in his ministry to the church, there were struggles Riots in Ephesus, beatings in Philippi, stoning in Lystra, shipwreck at sea, dangers everywhere. As he wrote to the Corinthians, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The words he uses here describe a beast of burden which has fallen and couldn't get up because of its heavy load. This was how Paul struggled for the church in Asia. He thought he was going to die, and apparently he was willing to die for them. Why? Again, he had a heart for the church. He loved and cared for the people of God, so much so that in 2 Corinthians 11, he writes, Who is weak? 
and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant, or as the NASB translated, intensely concerned. Paul clearly identified with his brothers and sisters in Christ. When they were weak, he felt weak. And when they fell, it caused him great agony, intense concern. He understood the truth that it hurts to care. I'm sure he had nights where he tossed and turned as he thought about fellow believers, especially those who were struggling, facing difficulty, hardships, temptations, grief, sorrow. Paul obeyed the command that he gave to the church in Rome, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul empathized with those who were part of the body of Christ. This is the kind of heart, love and caring heart, that we usually only have for our immediate family, right? Paul, but for Paul, the church was not uh, like his family. It was his family. They were truly part of him in a way that sometimes our biological families can't be. Now, we've already seen Paul's heart drove him to rejoice in his suffering. It was last week. To work extremely hard, struggling in his ministry, agonizing over the church. But there's one more crucial struggle that Paul informs his reader of, his readers of later in the book of Colossians that I want us to see. In chapter 4, verse 12, we read, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul points to Epaphras uh, as one who struggles, same word, agonizes in his prayers for the church. Paul knew just how important this agonizing prayer was. I'm sure he also struggled along with Epaphras for the church in Colossae. He understood that the church is engaged in spiritual battle. Battle for the minds and hearts and souls of people. And he also knew that prayer is where the real struggle is. I say that because in Ephesians 6, after Paul described how to put on the full armor of God to get ready for battle, he concluded by telling the fully armored warrior to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, prayers, for all the saints. Prayer was and is a crucial, necessary part of this struggle, this battle, to build the church in this hostile world, to go and make disciples, to plant churches that would continue to reach out where they're planted. This was Paul's heart for the church, a heart that empathized, suffered, struggled in physical labor, spiritual prayer for the church. And it's the kind of heart that we should have as well. A heart that's willing to struggle, agonize, work, pray, suffer for the people of God, for the church, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for believers whom you've never met. So the question is, are you doing that? Am I doing that? Got any agony in your life over the church? And do your struggles drive you to ministry, to hard work, prayer for the church. Like Paul, we should struggle and pray for the church worldwide. The church that we haven't seen face to face, especially the church in places where trouble and persecution is taking place. We should be praying diligently, as we did this morning, as Sean led us for 
the church in Turkey and Syria and surrounding areas. We should pray for Amy and John who will continue to minister in that area. But I'm going to be a little bit selfish this morning, if I might. Do you spend time struggling, working, praying for bridges? The church where, if you attend here, if you're a visitor, I'm talking to the people that come here regularly. Working hard, doing the ministry God has gifted you for. Praying. Praying for me, for the elders, for Liam as he leads us in worship, for Brian, for Ash, for those who teach our kids, for those who lead our home groups, for those who sit in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings with us, and for those who, for whatever reason, are unable to be with us. Do you labor and pray for the growth, spiritually and numerically, of our church? Do you pray and work so that we'll be able to equip and continue to send and support people from this church? I mean, those of us who've been around know that in many ways, Bridges has been struggling for quite a while. And if you're going to continue, if we're going to continue as a church, we need to struggle together. We need to labor together. We need to pray together that God would do a work among us. That God would continue to use us in this city and enable us to send those out to be used around the world. But for that to continue to happen, we have to have a heart for the church. A heart like Paul's. A heart that struggles for the church. That's what we see in our next point. We see what the point of the struggle is. Paul's desire for the church. Paul struggles for the church so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now that's a lot. Paul wants a great deal for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me just break it down. I see three connected desires that Paul has for the church. First, he wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them to be lifted up. That word encouraged is the Greek parakleo, and is associated with the Holy Spirit. We have the comforter, the paraclete. It means to comfort, to exhort, to strengthen, to encourage. And this encouragement they feel in their hearts is based on Paul's second desire for the church. He wants them to be knit together in love, to be united in love for one another, to obey the, the new commandment Jesus gave to his disciples, his followers in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's a lot. You also are to love one another. Like Jesus, Paul sees the great importance of true love for one another in the body of Christ. And finally, he wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Again, that's a lot, but Paul summarizes it, which is Christ. Christ is all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Christ is everything. If you want to know about the mysterious, invisible God, we've talked about this, right, in his, in his description of Christ earlier in Colossians, 
If you want to know what God is like, look to Christ. So ultimately, Paul is struggling for the church so that the church might know Christ. This was Paul's goal for himself. As he uh, writes to the Philippians, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. To know Christ. That's his desire for these for the Colossians. And mature Christians have always known that the key to spiritual growth to maturity is an increased knowledge and focus upon Christ. A love for Christ. Less than one month before C.S. Lewis died, he wrote this letter to a nine-year-old girl. I said, why did I say nine years old? To a young lady, a little girl. Dear Ruth, many thanks for your kind letter, and it was very good of you to write and tell me that you like my books, and what a very good letter you write for your age. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you, and I hope you, always, you may always do so. Very simple, but you get the point. If you love Jesus, if you have a deep abiding faith and love for Christ, if you love, if, you're, if, if love and faith flow from a true knowledge and understanding of Christ, if you're loving the actual Jesus, you love Jesus for who He is, not who you want Him to be, then despite the fact that life is often full of trouble and difficulty and hardship and sorrow and suffering and pain, as C.S. Lewis said to little Ruth, nothing much will go wrong. Your knowledge-based love for Christ makes all the difference in this world and in eternity. It gives you a different perspective. So the important question is, how does the knowledge of Christ come? How do we come, how do we come to know and grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Well, normally, this would be where I would turn and focus on the Word of God. Our second core value there, right? Reliance on the Word of God. We know Christ through the Spirit's revelation of Him in the Holy Scripture. And that is certainly true, and we could talk about that. But that's not what Paul focuses on here in Colossians. Instead, he focuses on number five. Genuine relationships. He's not going to use those words, but that's sort of what, we, what he says is kind of what we mean by them. Listen again as I read verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Notice the connections Paul makes. Hearts are encouraged by being knit together in love. And this knitting together in love results in reaching all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mysteries, which is Christ. In other words, our knowledge of Christ, our knowledge, head-heart knowledge, increases when we're knit together in love for one another. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce comments, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. Do you see what this means? This means that mere biblical head knowledge of Christ will not bring the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. 
For understanding and knowledge also comes through the love of Christians uh, loving one another. To know Christ more fully, we need one another. Now, why is this the case? How does it work? I think it works in two complementary ways. And when I say them, those of us who've experienced them, and I hope we all have, will say, ah, yeah, that makes sense. First, when we are loved by other believers, when God's people express God's love for us in, in many different ways in our time of need or in other times, we experience Christ through them. We are representatives of Christ in this world, and when we love people, they're experiencing the love of Christ through us, and therefore our knowledge of Christ, when we experience that love from believers, our knowledge of Christ is increased and enhanced. And also, when we, in the power of the Spirit, love other members of the body of Christ, then not only do they come to know Christ better through us, but as we depend on Christ to love through us, our knowledge of Christ and His love is increased. So when we're being loved or loving others, there are full riches of a complete understanding of Christ. We see the love of Christ. We know more of Christ and His love. This is an important message for, uh, for the Bible-believing evangelical church. No intellectual process alone, which we tend to focus on. I, I'm a culprit there. Uh, no intellectual process alone will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ. It must be accompanied by a love for Him and a love for Christians that knits us together. We cannot pursue knowledge of God in a willful, unloving isolation, rejecting fellowship with others. Historically, some have tried this and have suffered incomplete or even distorted understandings of Christ. Quote-unquote complete, to the extent that it can be in this life, understanding of the mystery of Christ comes in a loving Christian community. The deepest knowledge of the mystery of Christ comes from both head and heart. We must study the scriptures about Christ intensely. I'm not taken away from that one iota. It's second in our core values. We must study the scriptures with all our heart even. And we must love him and his people with all our heart. And then we will know him as we should. So when love is present in the church, it increases the knowledge of Christ, which in turn results in more wisdom and knowledge. This connection is made by Paul at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3. He states his desire, let's read it fully, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This may be a a little jab, a poke, a swing at those false teachers who were claiming to have some special wisdom and knowledge. Hey, you want to know what the real deal is? Come over here. You want to hear this vision I had? Come over here. Listen to me. Oh, this new philosophy? It's much better than that old one. Come over here. Paul says, no. He says that uh, there was and is no treasury of knowledge for all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. Of this, the Scottish Baptist minister Alexander McLaren remarked, in Christ, 
As in a great storehouse lie all the riches of spiritual wisdom, the massive ingots of solid gold, which when coined into creeds and doctrines are the wealth of the church, all which we can know concerning God and man, concerning sin and righteousness and duty, concerning another life, is in Him who is the home and deep mine where truth is stored, the central fact of the universe and the perfect encyclopedia of all moral and spiritual truth is Christ, the incarnate word, the lamb slain, the ascended king. Way to go, Alex. These Scottish guys have it going sometimes. Here's the point, if you didn't get it. When we love him and love the scriptures and love the church so that we are united in love with each other, the mystery unfolds. And we're in touch with all those treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We know Christ in deeper, in deeper ways. Paul's desire was that the Colossians would grow in their knowledge and understanding of Christ. He was concerned about their minds their head knowledge. He was concerned about these false teachers trying to divert them. And that's why uh, most of the first chapter gives this deep theological picture of the supreme Christ and his supreme work of reconciliation. But he's also concerned with their hearts. Their heart knowledge and understanding that comes not only by receiving truths, but by experiencing those truths lived out in the body of Christ. Loving one another, caring for one another, being there for one another. And so I would challenge us, maybe you've spent a lot of time studying the Word of God. Yay, I'm glad. Maybe you have a clear head understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done for the world. You should. And yet, your relationship with Him is somehow lacking. You just don't always feel it. You can't understand how you can struggle with sin when you know the truth of Christ's forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit's life in you and His empowerment for you to overcome sin. You know the truth of His great love for you, and yet you do not experience that love. Let me suggest, based on what Paul says here in Colossians, it's quite possible that you're missing an important element in your relationship with Christ. That is his body. You know, you're focused on that head, and that's great. Of course you should, but he has a body. And he picked the body. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if, if you don't like it, maybe sometimes. But he picked it. And so we need to focus there as well in a practical, lived-out love for his church. So we've seen Paul's struggle and desire for the church. Now he makes clear his uh, concern for the church. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Okay, that's pretty good. Again, the connection to what has gone before is clear. Paul was motivated to say all the above because he was specifically concerned that the Colossians were being led astray. He didn't want them to be deluded. That word means to be beguiled or deceived. The false teachers, with their plausible arguments or persuasive, enticing words, meant to delude, beguile, and deceive the believers. And the connection with verse 2 and 3 is this. 
these persuasive arguments could easily lead astray those who were not knit together in love. Because without love for one another, they were missing out on the treasures of Christ's wisdom and knowledge, the fullness of Christ, and therefore deception would be possible if not easy. This was an important warning for the church of Colossae, Laodicea, and throughout church history. Let me tell you a personal story that unfortunately illustrates this. If you were here last week, I mentioned that I was reading, I'm now finished, a book by Greg Laurie about the life of Billy Graham. And I noted that both of these men had impacted my life. Greg, I call him Greg, uh, Mr. Laurie, whatever, with my initial salvation in 1976. So that was Greg's part. And then Billy Graham with my commitment to live fully for Christ in 1983. Some of you have heard the story of how God called me, a 20-year-old college student, to the mission field in 1983 at a Campus Crusade conference in Kansas City, Kansas, KC83. How the first night of the conference, Billy Graham spoke, and uh, it was a, more of a commitment message. This was a group of college students from, involved in Campus Crusade. And at the end of the message, I stood along with many other students and said, Lord, I will go wherever you want me to go, and I will do whatever you want me to do. And then on the second night, missionary, many of you are familiar with, Elizabeth Elliot, spoke about the needs of the world. And in my head, I put those two together, and I said, okay, I just said I'll do whatever, and there's a lot of needs out there, so I committed to go as a cross-cultural missionary. I didn't, I thought, I actually thought, I'm going to, I can do this, but God will never let me go. But he did. It was, it was weird. So that's the standard story I tell about my call to missions, right? But there's another part of the story that I, I don't think I've ever shared publicly. I went to KC83 with several of my uh, close friends, most of which attended this church when it was uh, Bible Fellowship of Riverside. And so we all, we were, we were, some of us were from uh, RCC Camps Crusade and many of us from, from Bible Fellowship. We had a lot of fun hanging out. We, were, we had posh hotels. We had a really nice hotel because we had come so far from California, they gave the people coming farthest the best hotels. We ate together. We went to the conference sessions together. We just hung out. Had a lot of fun. But there was a guy who came with us. To my shame, I don't remember his name. He wasn't really one of us. He was a little odd. And we didn't really draw him into our group. We didn't make an effort. And when the conference was over, he wasn't on the return flight. And I never saw him again. But I was told what happened to him. Back in the day... I don't know if it, how long it happened. I only ever went to hear Billy Graham speak once, but in that time, apparently people, uh, when Billy Graham spoke, there was a Christian cult group that would protest or have signs and march around outside. Can't remember what their point was. Not sure what they were protesting. But they were there with their signs, and they would seek to talk to those who were going in to hear Billy Graham. I just ignored them, but apparently the guy who came with us 
and who we didn't really show much love for, not only spent time talking with them, but ended up joining them and staying with them in Kansas City. Because he was not knit together in love, because he, we didn't love him as we should, he was deluded by their plausible arguments. Through the years, I've often wondered if I had taken the time and the energy to love him, to draw him into the body of Christ, would, this, would things have been different? Could I have stopped him from joining these false teachers? Now, that was uh, 30 years ago, and there are still false teachers out there. They've only, they've only grown in number. We face false teachers, both religious and secular. The religious try to deceive us by changing or adding to the pure gospel. They promote a different God, a different Christ. And the secular are similar. The secular false teachers, which now fill our colleges, our universities, our media, try to deceive us by scoffing at the pure gospel. They promote no God, and uh, if Christ at all, He's unrecognizable. So for our soul's sake... There must be a deep, growing knowledge of Christ and love among us. Put simply, it's easy to fall away from a body that you're not connected to. And so I'd encourage each one of us to make connections, to share genuine relationships, to come to church every Sunday, to join a small group, to come to Sunday morning prayer time, to spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ socially. Uh, Be friends. Pray with one another. Encourage one another, help one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds. And for those of us who are connected, don't be like a 20-year-old me. Love those who God has at bridges and those who God brings to bridges. Draw them in. Demonstrate the love of Christ to them that they might not be deluded with plausible arguments. That they might not fall away because of what they've heard on what their college professors are teaching them, or what they've heard on TV or online. So Paul told the church of his struggle, his desire and concern for them, and then he closes, like any good preacher, with encouragement. Paul encourages the church. Paul's encouragement for the church, that's the point. Verse 5, For though I am absent in body, again Paul reminds them that he's not with them, in fact, was never, has never met most of them, yet I am with you in spirit. Despite the physical absence, there is a spiritual connection, we've talked about it, between Paul and the Colossians. They're both in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. They share the same spirit of God, and therefore, in a sense, he's with them. And of course, he's heard everything about them from Epaphras, who came to Rome, so he's writing this. Epaphras is there, telling them about the difficulties at the church, the people at the church, the false teachers. And so based on this, Paul encourages the church. He's with them in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul began this section in uh, verse 24 of chapter 1 by saying he rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the church. And now he rejoices in the church that he and Christ and others have suffered for. It's, it's, had, its, it's had its effect. He rejoices in two characteristics of the church. And in so doing, he's encouraging them to continue in this way. They should continue with their good order, 
or discipline, that's a, how the NASB translates it, and the firmness or stability of their faith. These words, good order and firmness, in Greek are military terms. Paul's encouraging the Colossians to continue like soldiers. He wants them to be a band of brothers and sisters, being knit together in love, growing in their head and their heart knowledge of Christ, standing firm in their faith, resisting the enemy, resisting and fighting against these false teachers. He's saying, I rejoice in you. You're doing good now. Keep it up. And I'd rejoice and encourage us in the same way. At Bridges, I think we do share these characteristics. For the most part, we're a disciplined lot. We're firm in our faith. But like the Colossians, there's room for growth. There's room to struggle in our labors and our prayers for the church. There's room to increase in love for Christ and love for one another as members of His church, resulting in an increased knowledge and understanding of Christ that we might avoid being deluded and disconnected from Him and His church. Put simply, there's room for our hearts, for Christ and for His church to increase. So would you join me in prayer for that? Father God, I pray for myself. I pray for each person here. I pray that we would have a, in a supernatural way, we'd have a heart for the church, that you would remove any stony heart that's left in us for God's people and replace it with, with a, a tender heart, a heart of love for your people, for your church, that we would be knit together in love and as we as a body come together, as we focus on the head together as the body, we would grow in the knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding of you, of Christ. Father, I pray that for myself. I pray that for each one of us, that we would know you and that we would love one another. In Christ's name. Amen.